Today, I want to talk specifically for just a few minutes about refugees and religious liberty because I feel like there is an intersection here that is so, so, so important. I don't want you to miss it. It goes right to the heart of the message of Christianity. And it's something that if we're not careful, it's just going to slide off our radar screens. And I think ultimately it could hurt us as a church, not just our local churches, but the church in general, and ultimately hurt us as a nation. Now, I am so aware that we do not agree politically. And even in the city of Atlanta, when you think, you know, decay, and Buckhead and Alpharetta and Gwinnett County and, and Woodstock Church and Brownsbridge Church up in Brownsbridge and then Oconee. I mean, when you think about all of our churches, we have a extraordinary diversity. You may not see the diversity in your, your particular campus, but I love the fact that we're diverse. And we're diverse in terms of our political persuasions as well. But there is one thing that we all intersect on and one thing we connect on and one thing we all agree on. And if you don't agree on this, this may not be the church for you, to be honest. But one of the things that we come back to over and over is simply this. We absolutely believe, you know, Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or Independent or you haven't figured it out yet. We all agree that what's best for people is what's best. That what's best for people is what's best. We may not agree on what's best for people, but we agree that what's best for people is what's best. Um, we are all for human dignity. We, we believe in inherent, not ascribed value, which is an inherently Christian message. Now, this isn't, this isn't a new idea. If you're a parent, you get this. Some of your biggest arguments you know, in your home about your children have not been, well, I can't decide if I love them or not. The arguments are, this is what I think we should do. Well, this is what I think we should do about her. Well, this is what I think I should, we should do about his behavior. This is what I, so as parents, we argue sometimes about what's best for our children. We may not agree on what's best for our children, but we agree what's best for our children is what's best. Well, that basically is sort of you know, underscores, or I think explains most of the debates that happen in our country. And in this way, and this is a good thing, in this way, we are a Christianized country. We are a Christianized nation. I don't like to use the term Christian as an adjective um, because of you know, the, the history of that important, important word. But for sure, whether you're a Christian or not, and, and that's not the point, we are a very Christianized nation. And here's why I say that. All of our national debates, once you peel back all the layers and all the politics and all the you know, who you like and who you don't like and what he and she said, once you peel all of that back, all of our major national debates in this country are based upon this agreed upon assumption. And the reason I wanna talk about this is I don't want us to ever lose this agreed upon assumption. And the agreed, agreed upon assumption on both sides of most of our arguments is this. Individuals have inherent value and nobody should be mistreated or discriminated against. That when you kind of drill down you know, behind all the agendas and everything, you find people on both sides that basically agree, you know what? Nobody should be mistreated and nobody should be discriminated against. We may never all agree on how you flesh that out, but at the end of the day, that's where we agree. And here's what I'm absolutely convinced of. As long as we are together on that agreement, we as a nation can figure anything out. But if we ever lose that, then we're in trouble. Now, you know, because you're smart people, you know that this is not the assumption everywhere. This is not assumed in every nation. This is not assumed in every culture. And one of the problems, and one of the reasons I want to talk about it, is because of our, our deep abiding you know, belief in the dignity of the individual as, as a country, it's easy to begin to believe that that's just something that's part of human nature. It is not part of human nature. It is taught it is learned. It is, you weren't born with this. You learn to have respect for other people and people who are different than you. This is something that's, so consequently, this is not an assumption in every other culture in the world. Every government, and maybe you remember this from some class from way back, if not, 
here it is for the first time, but every government, every single government takes a position. Every government takes a position on where people's rights come from. Now they may not state it, but every government in the world has taken a position on where individual rights come from. Um, if, if when the government claims to be the source, in other words, the government says we control what is right and wrong for people. We control what rights our citizens have. When the government decides that the foundation of human freedom is in the government, you end up with some sort of totalitarian system. You end up with dictators who call themselves presidents and are elected over and over and over and 90% of the people vote because you better, you know? And so because the government has decided we can decide on a whim what is right, what is wrong, and what is right for people. When the government or when a government decides that a particular religion, when a government decides that a particular religion is the source of human rights, you end up with religious discrimination because there is only religious freedom for that particular religion. Now, our founders got this right. Our founders, how they navigated this was so amazing. It didn't work out early on in all the colonies. And we know when the colonies became states, I mean, it took a while, but they finally, they stuck with this kind of basic tenet and it has become a a big part of the, the, the philosophy of our country, whether you've heard it stated like this or not. Our founders decided and declared Declaration of Independence. You can read their letters. Our, our founders declared that God not government, and not a religion is the source of individual freedom and liberty. That God, not government, and not a particular religion is the, is the foundation or the source of freedom. They would refer to nature's God, not the you know, worshiping nature, but nature's God, the God that created nature, the creator God that we've been endowed with inalienable, inalienable rights um, by our creator. And they were wise enough to stop there. They didn't identify as the Jewish God, is it the Christian God, is it the, they, just, they just left it there. So consequently, they made the most profound decision they could have made and they left it there that our rights are not given to us by government. Our rights are given to us by God and government has the responsibility of protecting those rights. So consequently, the reason I wanted to talk about this, the church is a part of that conversation because the church is the only group in our culture and in our society and the church is really the only organization in the world that is the steward of this message that every single person has individual dignity because that dignity flows not from any government, not from any constitution, but from the existence of God. And we are the stewards of that very, very, very important message. And every single person in this country benefits from that, whether they believe in God or not. Philip Yancey um, made a statement in his book, Vanishing Grace, that I love. I've shared this with you before, so if you think, where have I heard that before? It may have been um, from me. I love this phrase, I love this quote. It's, it's a little bit long, but it sets us up for where we're going. Here's, here's what he writes in Vanishing Grace. He says this, moreover, those who condemn the church for its blind spots do so by gospel principles. He says, when anybody criticizes the church for something, generally they're leveraging something the church teaches to criticize the church, arguing for the very moral values that the gospel originally, that the gospel originally set loose in the world. He says, whenever people are critical of the church, oftentimes they're leveraging something they learned from Christianity. They just don't know that's where it came from. He goes on, he says this, human rights, civil rights, women's rights, minority rights, gay rights, disability rights, even animal rights. The success of these modern movements, and these are modern movements, 
The success of these modern movements reflect a widespread empathy for the oppressed that has no precedent in the ancient world. That's why I said this whole idea that we feel like everybody has dignity, everybody should be treated justly, that is learned. That is an inherently Christian value. We are the stewards of that value. He goes on and completes his his thoughts this way. He says this, classical philosophers considered mercy and pity to be character defects. Now, we've seen that kind of philosophy in political systems and in governments all over this world. That pity is a, is a form of weakness and pity and compassion is a sign that something's wrong with a person, not something's right with a person. Mercy and pity to be character defects contrary to justice. Not until Jesus. Not until Jesus. This is why I come back to this theme over and over. Not until Jesus did that attitude change. This is why people flee to countries with a Christian heritage and a Christian background and away from countries and even continents where that was not and has not been the case. This is why people flee to where Christianity has or had influence and away from countries where it hasn't. This is why people flee to Europe and to the United States and to Canada. So that's kind of the background. That's why this is such a big deal because at the epicenter and at the crosshairs of the conversation about refugees in particular and religious liberty is the church. We have an extraordinarily important role to play and if we don't play it, there's not anybody else that's going to play it. So let's talk a little bit about refugees. Now, most folks, not you because you're above average, I get that, but most folks, the people that we're not streaming to today, okay? We may stream to them later. Most folks do not know the difference between a refugee, an immigrant, and someone who's seeking asylum in this country. Now, I'm sure that you do, but most people don't. And that's what makes all this conversation so confusing or part of it, because people are throwing around terms, and these are three very, very distinct groups of people. Uh, Most people don't know the difference, but this is the great thing. One of the greatest things about being an American, one of the greatest things about being an American, in fact, you may want to clap when I I say this, because I I think this is, this is, I think this is where we all agree. One of the greatest things about being an American is this. We don't have to know what we're talking about to talk about it. (laughs) Isn't that just great? Absolutely. We don't have to have an informed opinion, informed opinions to inform people of our opinions. And I get to get up every single week with a microphone and do this. It's just great to be an American, right? Now, here's what I want for all of our churches. And if you're new to one of our churches, or you've been here for a while, but especially if you're new, this is so important. Because one of the questions was, where do we stand and what have we done? And what's our, you know, what's our church doing? So listen carefully. You, if you're part of one of our churches, you have the moral authority to speak out on the subject of refugees, regardless of your view, because you have put your money where your mouth is. You have been caring for refugees and caring about refugees before caring about refugees was cool, okay? You may not have known this, but because of what you have done and what we're doing as a bunch of local churches, we have been in the refugee game for a long time. So if you're a Republican and somebody says, oh, you're heartless, you don't have any compassion, you don't care about these people that need to come to our country, you just say, hey, 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 hang on, hang on. Before you could spell refugee through my local church, I was supporting refugees all around the world. I put my money where my mouth is I have a right to have an opinion. I'm worried about national security, but it's not because I'm heartless. I have a great deal of compassion for people in need. If you're a Democrat and people are like, oh, you're just politicizing the whole thing. You just don't like President Trump. You say, wait, 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 wait a minute. I have put my money where my mouth is through my local church. I have been supporting refugees long before this became part of the national conversation. Okay, you got that? All right, now, what is a refugee? Because I know you know, but this is, 
you know, for everybody else. Here's what a refugee is. A refugee is someone who has fled from his or her home country and cannot return because he or she has a well-founded fear of persecution. A refugee is actually a, a, a specific category of people. It's not just somebody who's run away from something. It's a, it's a legal status. Uh, well-founded fear of persecution based on religion, race, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a, a particular social group. Currently, there are about 21 or 21.3 or 21 and a half million refugees all around the world. And you know how this works. There's, their country's disrupted. They leave their homes. They are displaced within their own country. They realize they can't stay in their own country and they go to their borders. And they begin to stack up on the borders of the countries around them. They cross the border and they enter into refugee status. They're put in refugee camps or refugee homes. And now there's a host country taking care of thousands, in some cases 10,000, and in some borders, over a million refugees from these countries, people from these countries where people have had to flee for various forms of persecution. Now, here's the thing that I want you to to know. So when you talk about this or this comes up, you'll have some good information. Less than 1%, less than 1% of refugees are ever moved to what's often called a third tier country. So they have their country, they cross the border into a neighboring country. Most refugees are stuck there and they stay there. And the reason they stay there, and this is important, is because most refugees, fill in the blank, want to go home. They don't want to be in a neighboring country. They would have already been there. They don't want to be transported halfway around the world to some other country away from friends and family and language and culture. Refugees want to go home. So less than 1%, less than 1% of refugees in any given year are generally resettled in a third tier country. The United States The United States resettles, I know this isn't precise, but this is a constantly moving ratio. The U.S. usually resettles almost two-thirds of less than 1%. So less than 1% ever get moved. The United States generally takes in about two-thirds of that less than 1% into the United States. Since 1980, 1980, three million refugees. You think, three million refugees? That's 37 years. Many of those refugees have passed away or moved. Three million refugees over 37 years. It is one of the incredible, incredible success stories of the U.S. government working with nonprofits in this country to help refugees get resettled. So every year, every year, the president of the United States sets what is called the refugee ceiling. I know this is a lot of information, but I'm going somewhere. The refugee ceiling is just a number that the president of the United States comes up with. Congress generally nods world and the light, you know, life goes on and the refugee ceiling is the maximum number of refugees that our country will take in during any one year. And the number of refugees and the source fluctuates with all the global events and all the changes happening in our world. Now I'm going to show you a chart. It won't be a quiz, but I want to just give you a visual. And then I want to talk about your involvement with refugees. Okay. So Here's the um, number of refugees admitted since the last uh, four years of President, uh, last five years of President Bush, eight years of President Obama, and then the refugee ceiling, which is set at 50,000 people by President Trump. The variation in terms of actual refugees, this isn't, this isn't the ceiling. Generally, the ceiling is higher than the, norm, than, the, than the number of refugees that are allowed in, in any given year. But the, the fluctuation over all these years is very, very minimum. It's about 20,000 people. 
about 20,000 people. Now, 20,000 people is a lot of people. But when you think about the size of the United States of America, it's a, really, it's a relatively small number. Um, the refugees come from primarily, you can see from Asia, which includes the Middle East. So all of that green is the Middle East and, and all of Asia. Europe, um, it's an interesting story why we get immigrants, uh, excuse me, why we get refugees from, um, from Europe. Latin America, and then the yellow is Africa. So Donald Trump, President Trump, decided, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna go from, I think, I think the, um, the ban, the, the cap that President Obama had put in his last year was like 110,000 refugees. We never even made it to 110,000 refugees. President Trump do- dropped it down to 50,000 because of the way the fiscal year works. I know this is just so fascinating. About 37,000 of the 50,000 are already in our country. So there's just a little bit of room to grow if we get, if we hit that cap. So I want you to look at this. This is basically what's been going on for years and years and years. And then I want to ask you a, a quiz question. And this is, this is, you can ask your friends this and you'll appear smart. If you had to guess, and don't say it out loud if you think you know. If you had to guess, in 2016, we had let in you know, more refugees than we have you know, in the previous years. Just not that many more, but more. If you had to guess which country the most refugees came to the United States from, what would you guess? Just think. Of all the things going on in the Middle East, all the things going on all over the world, if you had to guess, where did we take the most refugees in from in 2016? And I didn't know this either. So this isn't like you're not paying attention. The reason we don't know this is because we're not talking about this part of the world because this has been so politicized. It's not really about refugees. It's about other things. And the answer is the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is neither democratic nor republic. And that's why people are trying to get the heck out of there because of all the political disruption. It's, it's a horrible, horrible mess. But in 2016, with everything going on in Iraq, Syria, all over the world, we took in six, over 16,000 refugees from the Democratic Republic of Congo. In 2016, here's the top five. Syria, 12,000, Burma, Iraq, and Somalia. Now, as you know, President Trump put on, put, you know, instigated or instituted rather an indefinite hold on Syrian refugees, Syrian refugees. Now there's been a, Syria, a civil war in Syria since 2011 and there has been outrage in the national debate. We're going to talk about this is over national security or national compassion. Don't we care about people? Don't we care about refugees? Don't we care about the, the plight of those who, you know, who can't control their futures and their lives have been stolen? Do we care about them? Yeah, we care about them, but what about national security? So this is the debate, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So I wanna show you just a little bit of the hypocrisy of our nation, and then I wanna brag on you, so don't leave early. In 2011, a civil war broke out in Syria, as you may know. ISIS got involved, which so extraordinarily complicated that incredible, incredibly complex situation already. Imagine this, 4.8, there are currently about 4.8 million refugees who have left Syria and crossed borders into Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, and even have gone over to Iraq, about 4.8 million. There, in addition, there's 6.6 million um, Syrians who've been displaced. They're still in country. They either can't get across the border and, be, and have refugee status, or they've just had to flee their homes and they're just you know roaming around or finding places to try to survive in their own nation. Now, to put all that in perspective, Syria is just a little bit larger than the state of Georgia. Now you can get in your car and get to the coast or to Alabama or to Florida or to, you know, to one of our regions, you know, in two and two hours, two and a half hours, you can be on a border. But what if you had to walk? And what if you had to carry, you could only take with you what you could carry. 
So 6 million displaced, 4 million refugees. This is, if you haven't heard before, the greatest humanitarian crisis of our time. It is a really, really, really big deal. Now, I wanna show you some more numbers and then I'm gonna make a point. Syrian refugees admitted over the last few years. In 2016, President Obama bumped it up to 12,587, which most people thought was great because it's, it's, just, it's just so chaotic. Now, 12,000 is a lot, but there's 10 million displaced people. So this doesn't really help. It, it is an act of compassion. And I'm not arguing it should be higher or lower. I don't know. In 2015, 1,682. But this is where it just kind of infuriates me a little bit and should infuriate you a little bit too because you're not part of this as I'm gonna explain in a minute. In 2014, 105. In 2013, 36. In 2012, these numbers are effectively a refugee ban from Syria. I mean, these are just a few families that got in now. Should it have been more? I have no idea. Neither do you. So I'm not making a judgment call, but I do want you to see this, the extraordinary difference between the last two years and these years. And this is not a political comment at all. My point is simply this, in terms of refugees, the average person in the United States of America doesn't really give a flip about refugees. They don't even know the difference between a refugee and an immigrant. So this isn't, this isn't even a political thing. This is just an observation. So the question is, where was the outrage in 2014, 13, 12, and 11? And I'm not talking about the outrage in terms of our president or our government. Where was the outrage in terms of our population? We just didn't know and we just didn't care. So here's my political comment, then I'll get back to preaching. For those, not you, because you, you got this as you're gonna see. For the people in our country who are so angry, who are so currently angry because of the decision of our current president, who are so angry about the US Syrian refugee policy, they're so angry, you're about five years late to the protest, okay? (laughs) The protest should have started down here when the civil war broke out and we let 29 Syrian refugees into this country. Is this too many? I don't know. Is this too few? I don't know, that's not my point. My point is we haven't, as a nation, we really weren't paying attention but you were. In March of 2015, I came to our churches. This wasn't even in the news. Now, in fact, when I would discover this, this was new to me and I watched the news all the time. And we were contacted by two organizations on the border in Iraq that said, it's getting real cold, real fast. And there are over 2 million refugees just on this border and they're gonna freeze to death if something doesn't happen. Would you help us? And they began to reach out to churches. And do you know what you did? This wasn't in the news. This wasn't on your radar screen. You probably didn't know, the, you know what was going on necessarily in Iraq and Syria because we're all busy people. But I simply ask you to get involved. And in two weekends, you gave over $600,000 to Iraqis, uh, refugees, or, uh, refugees stacking up on the Iraqi border. Many had fled from Mosul, some from Syria. $600,000. And when we sent those checks to those two organizations, they were astounded. It was like, nobody has responded this way. I mean, we're getting $1,500 from here and $2,000 from there, $600,000. That's why I say, regardless of your political persuasion, you are in this game. You spoke loud and clear, and here's why. Because people matter to God, and what's best for people is what's best, no matter where they live, no matter what they believe, and no matter who they worship. But that's not all. 
In 2012, when things were really getting heated up in Syria and people were fleeing to Lebanon, in fact, there's about a million and a half refugees on the Lebanese border in Lebanon. In 2012, through Be Rich, which is our annual giving campaign, if you haven't been here for very long, every year we just all give a whole bunch of money and then give it away. You started supporting Heart for Lebanon in Lebanon. And since 2012, you've given every single year through all of these years, you've given almost $300,000 just to that one organization to help primarily Syrian refugees who are stacking up on that border trying to figure out what are we gonna do and where are we gonna go? In addition to that, through Be Rich, because of what's happened in stateside and because there are so many more refugees, we've partnered with an organization called Friends of Refugees. Friends of Refugees is one out of five organizations that work over in Clarkston, Georgia. Um, if you haven't been to Clarkston, you just get on 285, get off at, I think it's this, uh, East Ponce to Leon exit, go outside the perimeter, you're in Clarkston. In Clarkston, you drive over there this afternoon, over 100 ethnic groups in one square mile It is one of the most dense square miles in the country. 7,000 people, one square mile, over 100 different ethnic groups there working with government money and nonprofits helping these folks get established, get their kids in school, language training, figuring out how to be an American. So my point is this. When it comes to refugees, your walk has earned you the right to talk. When it comes to refugees and refugee resettlement, if you think we've got enough, we don't want any more, or you think we need to open the doors and have more, wherever you are on that, you need to know, and I wanted you to know, because people are asking, where do we stand? What are we going to do? (laughs) I'm thinking, what are we going to do? So far, we've given about a million dollars to refugee resettlement and just helping refugees. You've done a lot, and I just want you to know that. And I just wanna say thank you again. And thank you for getting involved before it was political. Thank you for getting involved regardless if you're a Democrat or Republican or don't care. Thank you for getting involved. And when we stand up and say, you know what? People need us, you step up. And I think that's absolutely incredible. Now, yeah, if you give yourself a hand for that, yeah. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, I wasn't here and I missed that and I didn't know Be Rich did that and I don't remember those two weekends. So it is not too late. So if you have not had a chance to put your money where your mouth is, because I want you to run your mouth, it's just, it's the American dream. You don't have to have any, any information, just talk about it. But I want you to put your money where your mouth is. So um, the, here are some organizations that we support. Don't, you don't need to write any of this down. I'm gonna make it so simple for you. There's three that work over in Clarkston um, with refugees that are in our city that are trying to figure out what to do and you know how to manage being an American and how to become a citizen. Heart for Lebanon, I mentioned, and Samaritan's Purse, they're just a phenomenal organization as you know, they go to the most difficult places, do the most difficult things, and we can't say enough about Samaritan's Purse. So what we did is I asked our team to put the websites for all five of these organizations on one website that you can find easily, and it's just go, go, um, globalx, globalx.org refugees. Go, excuse me, globalx.org slash refugees. You go there. We're not asking you to give us money. The links to these organizations are there, so here's the deal. If you wanna help globally, you can help globally. If you wanna help locally, you can help locally. If you think, oh, we have too many refugees, we don't need any more, then help globally, because that's where most of the refugees are anyway. They don't wanna come here, they wanna go home. If you're like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine being displaced from my country, starting all over, learning the language, trying to get my kids in school, then give locally. And that brings me to the next part of the message, which is the crowd thinner. And here's the question. (laughs) Do refugees pose a security threat? Because that's the issue, right? I mean, we don't, everybody was all for national security. It's just, you know, which, you know, how do we do that? And what's the best way forward? Do refugees pose a security threat? So I want to be absolutely clear on my answer for this, okay? The answer is no and possibly. 
No, because there are much easier ways to get into this country. The 9-11 hijackers, they all came in on visas. The Boston bombers' parents came in on a travel visa, applied for asylum, and then his, the boys were you know, radicalized once they were here by a dead Muslim cleric. So the, the, none of the, the big events that we've had have anything at all to do um, with refugees. And in fact, the refugee process is so stringent. It is the most stringent. You've heard about you know, this extreme vetting. It is so extreme. It takes at least a year and a half to three years to even be approved and to get here. So if you are gonna do somebody harm, you are not gonna get in a year and a half to three year waiting, you know, get on a waiting list. Besides, being chosen as a refugee to come to this country, it's the, the odds are like winning a lottery. It would be like if you have a teenage son and you say, son, you know, what are your plans financially? And he were to say to you, well, first, I'm gonna win the lottery. Well, that's not a plan, right? You have no control over that. That's the odds of being chosen. In fact, half of the, half of the refugees that the UN screens and approves to come to the United States, half are automatically discounted because of other standards that the US has when it comes to the US, uh, when it comes to the refugee resettlement program in this country. Multiple interviews with multiple agencies. However, and this is what brings me to the possibly, however, about 40 refugees mostly young men, in fact, maybe all young men, I couldn't get that information, about 40 refugees have been arrested in this country for planning or plotting some sort of terrorist activity. But they didn't come in as terrorists. They came in as refugees that were radicalized once they got here, which is why I say possibly. But possibly is not on them. Possibly is on us. And that's what I want to explain for our final few minutes together. Our compassion, which I'm all for, you know that. And our human rights or, you know, orientation, which we should always celebrate. Our compassion, our, you know, as Americans, our human rights orientation that comes from our Christianity and our Christian base has the potential to distract us from something very important. And I don't want you to be distracted and I don't want us to be distracted. And as a citizen, I don't want our nation to be distracted but this is on us. We are constantly reminded, aren't we? We're constantly reminded. We're a nation of immigrants. We're a nation of immigrants. We're a nation of immigrants. Understand, this is not an argument for something and this is not an argument against something. This is simply an observation, but it has been turned into an argument. And not only that, it's an incomplete statement. This doesn't give us all the information. This plays on our compassion and we should be compassionate. But the statement plays on our compassion, but it's incomplete. Here's the full statement. We are a nation of immigrants who, while maintaining cultural distinctives, embrace the culture, values, and constitution of the United States. That we are a melting pot. That is, people assimilate. And the Amer- this is so important. The American experiment worked because people come here, unlike Europe, unlike other parts of the world, people come here to become Americans. And that has made us distinct. And the reason that's the case is because of the youth of our country. I'm not talking about your teenage son, just our country isn't that old, right? And we are in some ways a nation of immigrants. But because of that, the tradition of this country has been, you come to America and you keep your, you know, certain distinctives, cultural distinctives for sure, but you come to become an American. And together, together, our entire population partnering with people who've come to this country, we've made it work through assimilation, through education, and through intermarriage. And again, people keep some cultural distinctives, but they, uh, they normally, or they actually become over time and their families become American families. But here's what I want you to hear. This is kind of the twist. We are a nation of immigrants in terms of, you know, people love to say that, but we are not first and foremost a nation of immigrants. 
We are first and foremost a nation of law. In fact, you cannot express, express compassion if there is not a legal framework from which to express it. We are not a nation of compassion. We are not a nation of religion. We are a nation of laws. And those laws were derived from a source higher than and prior to the U.S. government. Which means compassion and religion inform our legal system. And that's a great thing. But we must not allow them to undermine our legal system. This is so important. Compassion, compassion, generosity should always inform our legal system. And you need to know, it does inform our legal system. You compare our legal system to any other legal system in the world. Our legal system so leans in the direction of liberty and so leans in the direction of freedom that sometimes we get ourselves in trouble. But we cannot ever allow that to undermine the legal system. In other words, we must not tolerate what can't assimilate into a framework that provides dignity and justice for all. And this is where the church intersects with this very, very important topic. Now, what I'm saying is not new. And if you hear me saying, oh, you're just trying to pick on a specific group or pick on a specific religion, that's not the case at all. Let me prove it to you. This is not new. Once upon a time in this country, once upon a time, there was a version of Christianity, my religion, your religion, Once upon a time, there was a version of Christianity in our nation that embraced slavery and used the Bible to defend it. Southern preachers railed on, you know, the Old Testament and they used some of the words of the Apostle Paul and owning slaves and having slaves was argued to be a good thing and it was part of their religious expression. You can't do that anymore. You cannot practice that version of my religion in this country anymore. The 13th Amendment said you can't be that kind of Christian if that's core or, you know, if that's germane to your Christian experience. Here's one that's hypothetical, but, you know, a case could be made. You can't, you can't practice Old Testament Judaism in this country. If you decided, hey, you know, we can't get to the temple anymore, so we're going to build a new temple, consecrate it, you know, re, you know, recreate the Sanhedrin and have a priesthood and animal sacrifice, we're going to we're going to we're going to practice Old Testament Judaism in America. You can't do that. Now, a case could be made. Wait a minute. Don't you Christians all think that the Bible is the word of God and it's inspired and you carry around that old, te- you know, the Old Testament with your New Testament? In fact, you have so much respect for the Old Testament, you put it in the same piece of leather as your New Testament. You're telling me I cannot practice my religion in this country even though you Christians carry it around and teach it to your children. What are you talking about? Well, you can't practice Old Testament Judaism in this country the way it's laid out in a sacred text. You cannot obey portions of the Bible. So I'm being fair. Let me give you an example. If a man happens to meet in a town a virgin, pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them out to the gate of that town and stone them to death. Oh no, you shall not. Because this is against the law. Now, I realize for those of you who grew up like me and you Christian, been a Christian all your life, you know, give me a J, give me, you know, let me, if we had time, I could explain why this does not bother me. But my point today is simply this. Our government so, so beautifully, we can't lose this, so beautifully is an equal opportunity offender when it comes to reigning in religious practice for, for the sake of dignity and justice for all, and we can't lose that. And as Christians, as Christians, we play a critical role because we are the stewards of the message. We are the stewards of the message that everybody is made in the image of God. Another example, our government for many, many years, for decades, has shut down all kinds of religious cults. Now, let me tell you about religious cults. 
A religious cult does not think it's a cult. It thinks it's a what? A religion, right. And most religious cults in the United States use what book? The B-I-B-L-E. And they're like, it says right here, and this is my sacred text. And the government says, yes, but you can't treat children like that. You can't sleep with, you know, underage kids. You can't have multiple wives. You, you, know, we, you know, I know it's your religion. I know it's your book. I know it's your sacred text. But, you know, dignity and justice for all, you've crossed the line. You cannot practice that religion in this country because of where we think our freedoms come from. But, and this is the great thing, our legal system, and you know this, our legal system extends extraordinary freedom to clubs, to some, some cults, mosques, churches, temples, and synagogues. In fact, if you look into this, and some of you spend your time thinking about and reading about these things all the time, but our legal system leans so far in the direction of saying, yes, 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 how much can we say yes? Our concern should be protecting the religious liberty as it was, as it was laid out in the beginning, which means every once in a while, the government needs to say no, because the guiding principle, the guiding principle The guiding principle is dignity, liberty, and justice for all. The Constitution, the Constitution grants you the freedom to believe whatever you choose to believe and to unbelieve whatever you want to believe. You can believe anything in this country. You can believe absolutely anything. You can have a religion for Monday, switch to something else on Tuesday, switch to something else on Wednesday, Thursday, and take the weekend off and start all over, okay? You can believe anything you want. This is why apostasy, you know what apostasy is? Apostasy is I'm rejecting my religious belief, I'm rejecting my church, I'm rejecting you know, whatever I was raised with. Apostasy is not illegal in the United States. Because we are guaranteed the freedom to believe whatever we want to believe. But the Constitution does not grant us the freedom to do or to behave however we choose to behave. So, as citizens, I'll get to Christians in a minute. As citizens, the broader circle, as citizens, we must have no tolerance. We must have no tolerance for a worldview, a religion, or even a version of a religion that undermines freedom of belief or condones behaviors harmful to others. As soon as it starts you know, shutting down freedom of belief and as soon as it starts condoning and mistreating others, that's when every citizen in this country should throw up our hands and say, you know what? We may not agree on what's best for people, but we agree that what's best for people is best and that's not best. But as a subset of citizens, us Christians, the church, has an even more fine-tuned responsibility. As Christians, we must have low to no tolerance for a worldview, a religion, even our own, or a version of religion, even our own, that undermines individual dignity. And the reason I can say that without blinking an eye, who love the Bible, read the Bible every day, I love the Old Testament, you've, you've been at our church for a while, I love, love, love the scriptures, it's because of what Philip Yancey said, when Jesus showed up, when Jesus showed up, Jesus unleashed an ethic Jesus unleashed an ethic that touches down and has the potential to touch down in every culture and every family and every single relationship. And at the center, at the heartbeat of that, of that ethic is that every single person was made in the image of God and demands and deserves respect, not because government requires it, but because God made it that way. To do so is to, to, to ignore this, is to undermine the liberty that makes this a nation that people flee to rather than from. And the church is the reminder. The church is a reminder. Nobody else is gonna remind our culture. Nobody else is gonna remind our world. This is nowhere else except the church. The church is the reminder that every man and woman and child is fashioned in the image 
of God. That government does not grant dignity. Government recognizes it and protects it. And so we must continue to be, and we must continue to work in our zone and our lane as Christians to be. One nation under God who delegated to government the defense of liberty, dignity, and justice for all. And the church, we, our responsibility, must resist any culture or religious expression, regardless of what sacred text it's taken from, that undermines that. And again, here's why. Because Jesus, Jesus declared and then demonstrated that God loves not a nation, not a people group, not an individual culture, that God loves the world. And the thing that thrills my heart about you and the thing that thrills my heart about us is not only does God love this world, you have loved this world. You have loved orphans in East Asia. You have loved orphans in Vietnam. You've loved orphans and foster kids in San Salvador. You have raised money to send your kids and your college students. And many of you have taken weeks and weeks off of uh, of vacation time to travel all over the world to love people who were nothing like you, who don't believe like you, and who may never believe like you. And you just went in the name of Jesus to say, I wanna be a reminder. I wanna be hands and feet to let you know. We may never see eye to eye on a lot of things, but you matter to God. And so you matter to me. And that's why I'm here. You have loved students in Burundi. You've loved students in the Philippines. You've loved students in South Korea. You probably don't even know about that. You love students and and church leaders and church planners in Mexico. You've loved refugees on the Iraqi border, the border of uh, in Lebanon. You've you've loved uh, refugees in Clarkston, Georgia. You've loved so many people. You've made such a huge, huge impact. And the reason, the reason you've been able to give, and the reason you've been able to go, is because of the freedom and the liberty that we have here that is founded in a government, founded in a government that recognizes government doesn't grant dignity. Government recognizes it and protects it. And so we must protect it as well. And not simply for our sake, but for the sake of the world that God loves. Heavenly Father, thank you for this church. Thanks for these fabulous, fabulous people. Thanks for the teenagers who, who take their spring breaks and do things. Thank you for the opportunities my kids have to see what you're doing in the world. Thank you for the church. Thank you for unleashing in the world this extraordinary ethic that God loves the world. He loved the world so much he sent his son into this world to pay the ultimate price for our sin so that every single man, woman, and child would have the potential, the opportunity to connect, connect with the God who created them. So Father, I know a lot of what I said lands in different places, but would you just give us the wisdom and the capacity to take what we've heard and to know what to do with it? And would you give us the wisdom to know how to take our responsibility as a church and our responsibility as Christians into our culture in such a way that it doesn't leave people thinking good things about us, but leaves people thinking good things about you. I pray that you give us more opportunities. I pray that we'd be able to pour millions of dollars into your work all around the world. And again, at the end of the day, to know that we worked with you to be your hands and feet, to love the people that you already love. So Father, whether we're Republicans or Democrats or somewhere in the middle, regardless of what we've wrapped our arguments with in terms of concern for people or concern for national security, 
would you just give us your eyes to see this and a heart to respond appropriately? And I pray that we would never line up as a group of churches politically. I pray that we would always line up with the Great Commission and the fact that people matter to you and that's what matters. In Jesus' name.